Welcome to episode nine of the Sink or Swim podcast. Did you just say episode nine, Mitch? We were approaching episode 10, but not quite there yet. That is a lot. This is a first, actually. We have a repeat guest. Oh my gosh, a repeat guest? Who is it? It's me. It's Dr. You? Kyle Bachman. <laughs> Woo! Thank you for coming back. I'm happy to be here. Um, we say thank you, but really you are the you are the, the, the person in charge. So really anytime you want to come on, you can come on. I was just talking to Mitch about that and saying that because I, I'm I put the fee down for the RSS or is it called? Mm-hmm. I'm I'm now the producer, just oh. so you know. Producer oh my gosh, in now charge. you can add producer to your LinkedIn. I, uh, probably gotta put it actually, yeah. Okay, I think you should. <laughs> and um, I think my little hand drawn logo will get in like like Dr. Bachman's LinkedIn. There it is, you know, it's on Apple Podcasts. Then you're famous. I'm a, am I a graphic designer now? <laughs> I think so. I think that's Sweet. a beautiful logo. Um, what was I going to say? Oh, we will now refer to you as Lord Bachman. Please no. Okay, <laughs> fine. I tried to I tried to get that going during admissions meeting too. Um, Don't think it's going to stick. No? no? Okay. All so right, fine. Just a, Dr. Bachman. In a previous episode with Dr. Bachman, we talked all about research. We dove real deep into his journey with research, all the stuff he's done, his accomplishments, and how med students could get involved. But now we're going to switch it up a little bit, talk about something completely different. We're going to talk about the most scary thing and exciting thing, med school admissions, which is something that a lot of people want to know about. If you're listening to this and you don't go to NSUMD, but you want to go to NSUMD or some other med school, or you just want to be a doctor, um, this is a good episode to listen to. Which is something that applies obviously the pre-medical students and then the second you get an acceptance somewhere it just completely disappears for the rest of your life but until that moment it's everything and you only need one acceptance remember that everybody just so, one dr bachman what yes. is your involvement in i guess your role here at nsumd in the admissions process so uh i was in the admissions process i think the entire time uh i was more on the outside at first. The, the first year I was uh, did most of the interviews. Uh, it, I did uh, created the PBL uh, interview process as well. Uh, so that was a, I don't know, small group activity. Samantha knows about it. That was her project uh, mm-hmm. that she worked on. Yeah. Um, and we are moving a chair around. It's like yeah. Uh, Mitch Mitch has a squeaky chair, so he's just moving his squeaky chair, and he's getting a new one. He's just gonna squat the entire time for the rest of it. Just have that in your head. Um, but yeah, so, so the first year I did mostly just the interview process. I helped create a lot of the uh, some of the activities for you for the I day. I remember you. I remember you at my PBL day. I remember you. I think you. I talked yeah. about this on our research episode, but um, I'll say it again. I thought you were a student. So actually, as a throwback, we'll go back to this, is that um, I, the last episode I've heard so far, because I think it's the one that's been published recently, is from Joshua. Yes. Uh, yeah. yeah. He was actually the one I remember the most. Really? Um, How could you not? I know, well, obviously, yes. But uh, I distinctly remember him because I, he was the first one where I, I thought, uh, I'm almost certain he's going to get in, and I'm almost certain he wants to come here. Why and, is that? Well, it had nothing to do with the interview itself, so I'm not giving away anything like, oh, sorry, Joshua, if you don't know about this already. <laughs> um, but I remember we have a room where the LCMs were, and now what Student Affairs is downstairs next to our PBL for anyone that works here. It had not been built out at that point. It was only for – it was kind of like a place for people to do admissions, uh, scoring. So all the faculty went in there, all the outside uh, clinic. Cl- uh, Clinicians went in there, gave scores, had some breakfast and stuff, and went on. But it was only for the faculty, theoretically. Um, everyone else seemed very afraid of it. It was like the secret room. 
Joshua had no problem. He just walked right in, <laughs> grabbed a cup of coffee, and you could just, he went right up to um, Dr. Samino, who was the chair at the time, and man, I have never seen two people vibe as much as they did. What a charming guy. Oh yeah. my gosh. They, it, was, it, was a, it was fun to look at. I'm, I'm watching that play out, I'm like, yeah, he's coming here. So, and I wasn't Aww. on the committee at that point, so I had no insight on that, but I was pretty sure, and sure enough, he was there. So, wow. I do remember him very well. Wow. Um, I'm glad you guys picked him up. Man, yeah, that was a good choice. What a gem. What a gem. Super Lovely fellow. Gem. Hopefully you're listening, Joshua. Josh, Josh whatever you want. Joshua. Joshua. I had that moment, too, on my interview day. I was, uh, I was, I was uh, as the kids say, vibing with uh, Dr. Wills and Dr. Hinson. I had no idea. I had yeah. no idea who they were. But <laughs> they were so nice. They are very nice, yes. We were just talking about Disney, and then the tour bus left without me to tour the campus. As it does, yeah. And I caused trouble that day. But you guys still took me. I'm very excited about that. That was a talk of a faculty for like a week. but No. It was like, you remember that girl then? Yeah. No. Yeah, because they were like, oh, yeah, she, the one that like lo- got left behind. Yeah. And you guys still accepted me? I mean, it wasn't for us. It was a committee to decide, but yeah. Wow. You were the, they were the joke of the class before yeah, the class and, even started. And I just got to straight up accept. It wasn't even like, hey, you're on the wait list. You guys just took me. Yeah, I can see that. Jeez. Um, but anyway, I did that. Wow. Um, then I got on the admissions committee after that, and I was doing that for the following three years. And then I was vice chair last year with Dr. Semino, and then he stepped down, and this year I'm chair. And actually, it will be my last year on the committee because I, I moved into a dean role, so I need to step down. Congratulations, by the Thank way. Thank you. Thank you. Um, but I do need to step down from that, uh, time reasons you know, and the like. Uh, so... I'm just kind of running this to the end. We have only a couple more weeks of interviews, okay. and that's it for me. Yeah. And then, so you're going to be able to provide the insider insights, secrets of the admissions process. Make it sound like um, the Illuminati, but yeah. I myself, it kind of feels like that when you're yeah. an applicant. <laughs> it is. It does. I myself have been on the admissions committee for the past year with Dr. Bachman. Um, I actually credit Dr. Bachman uh, for me being on the committee. Although my peers did select me, but I was the only one who applied. Um, <laughs> it is something I've always been wanting to do since I started day one at this school. I remember always pestering Jamie, um, "Hey, can I be on the admissions committee? Can I be on the admissions committee?" Um, and she said, "You have to wait till you're an M3." I applied when I was M3, didn't get the position. Applied again as an M4, was the only one who applied, so I got the position. Very exciting. And I think that we have a good little group, us three, because Dr. Bachman's obviously in a leadership role. Samantha is like somewhere in the middle doing a lot of the work of the actual deciding and selection process and my role has been super minimal I do like the interview uh, the like the meet and greet panels where we just like have they have lunch and we just talk for an hour I have no say in the application or selection process whatsoever I promise I've done interviews like one time where I actually graded the interviewees but other than that I have no role so I think it's a good little blend of involvement we have here and good to know for people you know candidates who are listening um, I know we 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 um, you know, we plugged the podcast at our last um, admissions uh, day, our interview day. Um, the med students that come to the lunch panel have no say. They're not grading you when you're asking questions or anything like that. They're just there. They're not. Their opinions are not solicited on you, uh, on the candidates. They're just there to answer your questions. Yeah, when I log off, I just go do my normal life stuff. I'm not like <laughs> meeting in a room in a Zoom room with like the other lunch panel people and grading you. No, absolutely not. It's it's specifically to benefit you all. And the residents did. The same thing for us when we did residency interviews when we had meet and greets and they assured us it had nothing to do with our admissions process 
And I myself, I also have been facilitating the, we have a PBL session here at our school, um, and I've been doing that for the past two years. Um, so if, if you're listening to this and you remember me, hello. <laughs> that was a really fun time. Yeah. I, just, I remember my PBL session. Obviously, we can't like tell you what the case was or anything, but it was really cool. I think that was uh, the moment when I realized that curriculum was was something I really enjoyed. Just being able to bounce ideas back and forth a- across, you know, different people I didn't even know yet. But I thought that like kind of discussion uh, was really cool. I was so nervous, Dr. Bachman, in that group. I there was someone who kept standing up to talk because ours was in person. I didn't know when to break in and say something because everybody knew the exact moment they were like they were listening to each other's breath sounds like they knew the exact moment when someone would <laughs> stop speaking and then they'd be they'd get in there with their thought. I was like, okay, well, I mean, okay, I'm just gonna sit back and watch these kids go for it. Um, and then you know, I had our dear, sweet, lovely Reed. Shout out, Reed. We we miss you. Shout out, Reed. Yeah, he's getting his public health degree at, at John Hopkins right now, um, but he'll come back next year. Uh, I remember he was in my my PBL group and and he he says Samantha. What do you think about this? Finally, giving me an opportunity to talk without interrupting people. Because I don't like interrupting people unless it's Mitch. Then I, <laughs> I, I don't like it. So tell us about admissions. Tell us tell us things. We have questions. Mm. All right. What are your questions? All right. Mitch, go for it. Well, I guess it's not maybe one question. But as an applicant, I feel like it's really easy to to see all the different metrics you all look at. And, and obviously you're not on an admissions committee, nor do you have any experience on the admissions committee as a, a pre-med applicant. You just know, or at least I knew, that's all I can give you is my perspective of my GPA is kind of important, my MCAT's kind of important, and then there's all these extracurriculars and to varying levels, maybe you guys care about those, whether it be shadowing or clinical experiences. So I don't know, it's kind of hard to know what the most important things are, but I feel like GPA and MCAT always stand out as two most important things. Yeah, I can I can definitely understand why uh, it always defaults to the MCAT or the GPA uh, for concern because those are easy metrics to look at and sure, surely they're gonna like look at those numbers. I mean, historically, MCAT has a strong correlation with uh, step one numbers, so I think a lot of schools look at that thinking that this gives me a sure bet for this individual because they're gonna get a high score, which means a really competitive residency, and that means maybe something that on the long term that helps as far as like, I don't know, them coming back as alumni, something like that. Um, but as you know, step one is moving to pass fail. So I think some of the idea that it has to be a certain number or what is that number or why is that important is changing a lot. And I think there's a lot more flexibility with whatever that number is, as long as you as an applicant have other things that, to bring to the table. And that kind of gets to the idea, the big emphasis with any admissions in med- USMD school, because I don't know admissions in any other program or any other uh, concept, um, but it's the holistic uh, interview, right? a holistic packet, and what you bring in all angles. So I think maybe from an applicant's perspective, when you hear holistic, it means I need to be perfect in everything, but that's not necessarily the case. Most applicants aren't. Uh, it just means that you might have weaknesses here, but if you have strengths here, it's not that this is going to sink your entire uh, packet. Uh, it's, you know, that we look at everything. And I guess we could talk about that. Yeah, I think the idea is, I mean, from what I've noticed over the past year, it's, no, we're not looking for perfect, well-rounded applicants uh, to be perfect in every, you know, arena. Mm-hmm. But 
I think what's lost on a lot of people when they're applying is this concept is, yeah, but you're going to learn that in med school. You're going to develop in med school. There's going to be a lot of personal growth. So I don't know what it is that we're looking for when we look for candidates, but there's always something that stands out, and it's hard to tell. It's hard to give you an exact recipe for what that something is, but you'll find it in the application when you read it. So I, I always like when applicants um, are themselves in their mm. applications. It actually seems like a stupid piece of advice, but it is the hardest thing for candidates to do, I've noticed, is to be themselves. Um, I'm not on the admissions committee, obviously, but do you feel like it's, I mean, you have to show to an extent that you can perform well academically. Obviously, you don't mm -hmm. have to have the best MCAT or the best GPA. Uh, there needs to be some level at which you can show that you're gonna succeed. Because like you said, it, it may or may not be correlated with board scores or whatever. And I remember as an applicant, just seeing this, I haven't looked at this in four years, obviously, but I remember there being tables by the AMC of like, you know, GPA and MCAT and then basically acceptance rates. And it's very like linear, the higher, the, the higher acceptance rate. It's, and not to say like we've been discussing, that's like the end all be all, but it's a very clear correlation. The better you do, the higher chance you have of getting in. Although there's so much more that goes into that holistic quote unquote review process. So some of this is going to be perspective. Uh, I, I think share with that as well, Samantha, like what you, your thoughts are as being on the committee. Um, but the first phase with any application in most medical schools, because we get a lot of applications, is kind of a, um, what is it, a screening phase. So like we'll have screeners that will go through before it gets to an interview uh, to say, like, do they meet these standards? And some of them are very basic. Like, did you just simply take the prereqs to even get into medical school? Because if you haven't taken any of the basic sciences, you kind of have a bad time. So basically screening out the people that didn't even read the admission requirements. And that happens mm -hmm. all the time. Uh, so, you know, it's something to look at. Uh, for us, because we're a brand new medical school, uh, until we get full accreditation, we can't accept any uh, non-U.S. citizens or permanent residents. Uh, so we have to look for that in case that, you know, maybe they didn't notice that because it's one of many medical schools that so maybe they just didn't realize. Um, but we have to look for that as well. Um, and then there's other things that, that we check for, like, do you have at least two letters of recommendation? Mm -hmm. That's, you know, bare minimum there. But as far as those numbers, I think like the maybe the bigger thing that most uh, students worry about. Um, it's kind of an amalgamation of, I, th I think the one that's popular in, if you search it, it's called the Lizzie M score. Um, that's like, I think a lot of students, it's not really just that, it's something similar to that. Every school has their own version of that, but it's basically like the GPA, the MCAT, and it's taken into consideration into some number. Uh, and then we have, kind of like an idea of like, okay, this number is someone that can do well in our program based off history or whatever. It sounds like a really nice way to take maybe a few objective metrics and turn them into an easy to read number where you can stratify very easily. And what about program like undergraduate school? Does that, is that factored into the, the, the score? It doesn't, it's not factored in the score, no. but um, so like once the score is there, it gives you like a, a place to go. It's still, it, Usually, especially for any students that may be worried about this, it's probably not going to eliminate you from the screening process. It really just eliminates you if, you know, there was there was really no practicality there. Um, you have a zero GPA or something like that. It's yeah, that, you need to go back maybe for a master's or something like that. And we can talk about those who do that, um, but. Yeah, there's not anything that is greatly discounted here. So I've, we've looked at applicants that have wide range of GPAs, wide range of MCATs. Um, 
but that's the first filter. So after that is an actual human element to it where you do go through the actual packet and you're looking for items that they've done. So being the experiences, um, the first being, I break it up into these three categories. Others might do it differently, but I, I, I look at clinical um, and then I guess for screening purposes, I look at clinical and then other. Like, so what did you do that was related to the field you want to go into? What did you do that wasn't related to the field you want to go into? Um, maybe in some tangent, but like research or service. Um, and, you know, what are your numbers with that? And I think that varies between every person that looks at that. Um, but generally with like clinical, you're looking that you've spent a sincere amount of time in activities that show that you've had some exposure to that field and that maybe you've interacted with individuals that work in that field and have mentored you on that. Because um, we want to get a good idea that if we give you an interview, then you get an acceptance that you will enjoy this when you get here. We don't want to charge you a year of tuition for you to find out you hate being a physician. Uh, so that's, that's what we're looking for there. We also want to see that you have some dedication to service in some way or some dedication to uh, um, like maybe research. But I really like to see the service angles. I, I know I talked about research in the last time I was on here, but I don't really find that to be absolutely necessary to, for an interview. And that isn't an elimination for screening either. Uh, it's something nice to see. But it's just one of uh, many things that would be nice to see. What are your mm -hmm. thoughts on that, Samantha? Um, for me, I just it's always so complicated for me when I'm looking at an applicant because I really try to be as holistic as, as possible. Mm. Um, but the biggest one of the biggest thing is dedication to the to the profession. I guess um, you have to be doing some sort of clinical something. You don't need to have a full time job, but you had to have at least at the bare minimum went and shadowed some physicians to see what it is. Mm -hmm. Or maybe you were a nursing assistant or you volunteered in a hospital. But if you have none of that, it's hard for me to gauge that you actually want to do it because you just have some maybe, it makes me think that that candidate might have some you know ideal idolized version of what a physician is based off of television shows or something. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. I want them to go in there, get into the hospitals or in the clinics and just see what it's like. And I think of, what both of you guys are saying is so important. If How can you accept somebody to medical school if they haven't shown they know what a doctor does or they haven't yeah. seen firsthand what a doctor does? Bare minimum, shadowing. Like, obviously, shadowing is great. You're one-on-one -on -one with a physician, and you're truly seeing what their day-to-day -day life is like. But if you're not doing – like, let's say somebody has a 4.0 GPA and they crush the MCAT, but they don't show any clinical involvement at all. Like, why, why would you accept someone like that? Because they could just be an excellent book smart student, but if they literally have no clinical involvement in any regard, like, why would you accept them to medical school? Yeah, that would be, I mean, and the, there's been instances like that where, yeah, mm -hmm. that's. But just like be a student and think about that. Why would you, why would somebody accept you if you haven't shown you know what it takes to be a physician or you know what that even involves? And I think that's where the misconception comes in with pre-meds is they think they got to have the perfect grades and perfect MCAT and they'll hone in on that mm -hmm. and solely that. Um, and, and, and you really shouldn't, you really should not do that. Um, especially yeah. with the MCAT. Yep. I want to talk about the MCAT because this right. is super, I, I, so I did a lot of reading about the MCAT cause you know, it was the scoring metric for the MCAT was changed. Yes. It used to be 45. Now mm -hmm. it's five, like now it's got on the 500 scale, yeah. 528 being perfect. And they, 
changed it to make it more, you know, equitable. Okay, we're adding a human element. And then when we ask about physics and chemistry now, it's more applied to the human body Mm -hmm. and to the life sciences, right? So instead of asking about uh, pushing a box up an angled ramp for physics, they're going to ask you about (laughs) blood flowing through a vein um, of Renouli's law when, you know, with constriction and then the speed of the blood flow. They're going to ask about that kind of stuff. and they made it with the ideal being a 500, meaning that if someone can score a 500, they should be successful in a medical school curriculum. 500. Mm-hmm. But that's not the average matriculant um, MCAT. Well, and the, the average is what? A 512 now. That's isn't a 500, average. I mean, I'm sure this has changed over the years, but isn't a 500 roughly 50th percentile? Uh, for everybody who takes it, yes. Yeah. But for matriculants, well, it's no, sorry. Higher. I just yeah. mean everyone who, who takes everybody it. Everybody who takes yeah. it, yes. what, what you said makes sense, too. If you're scoring better than half of the people who take the test, you know, you're probably going to be all right in a medical school curriculum. Even if you're getting a 501, 502, you could probably mm-hmm. keep up with medical yeah. school curriculum yeah. on average. Yeah. And, but is that our average matriculant media? Is that our median score for matriculant? No. No. And no. I'm not just talking NSUMD. I'm talking everywhere. Yeah. Um, U.S. schools, U.S. D- MD schools, USDO schools. Um, what school has an average of 500? They don't. So I think, yeah. at least from my perspective, correct me if you disagree, but it just shows that, of course, it's not the end-all be-all. We're like really harping on that, but it is super important. It's super important, but what I'd like to see collectively, and this is kind of a big, maybe it's radical and a weird thing to say, I'd collectively like pre-meds to chill out, <laughs> round themselves, be more rounded. Because, you know, pre-meds are going to pre-med. That's my saying. If the, if, if, if the, if the marker is 500, well, I'm going to get a 520. I'm going to be the best. And that, that, that mentality is sort of throughout the pre-med type and, and into medical students as well. But I think maybe if they just chilled on that and was, you know, and were more well-rounded in in a sense of like doing the things like going into the clinics and doing that kind of I, stuff, I would appreciate. That. I think there's a happy medium, though. I think, no, I'm not saying everybody should get 500s, but yeah, yeah. I think you know. I think that you can dedicate a few months of your time and really crush the MCAT to the best of your abilities yes, while still being a very well-rounded applicant. And I, and like it's so funny. I went on Reddit yesterday because I was trying to think of some stuff to talk about today during this like pre-med. And I went on the pre-med subreddit. Don't so, ever go on that subreddit. I, I know, but it was, it was great for this episode. <laughs> Somebody was asking if they should retake their MCAT, and they had a five like sixteen. It's this like is over why, 90th were percentile. Were they Canadian though? I didn't. I don't remember the okay, rest of it. I just remember specifically they were asking if they should retake like an over 90th percentile MCAT, as if that was the reason they didn't get into medical school. If they're Canadian, yes. All right, I'm not a, I'm not no. a Canadian <laughs> so, admissions expert. No, that no, still so, sounds okay, ridiculous. So I guess so. in Canada, there's it's very hard to get into med school, and there's a lot of emphasis put on the MCAT. Okay, well, my, but, my but, point okay, is so that no. the difference, like, if you're scoring 90th plus percentile, you can't get much better. So, like, that's Correct. not the part to improve. Yeah. No, and, yeah. and we see that with reapplicants, too. We see it. Um, why why are you rea- why are you reapplying? That's a question, right? Or, or what have you done to improve your application? Oh, I retook my you know MCAT where I got a 508. Um, it probably wasn't that that was keeping you out of med school. It might have been the amount of apps you applied to or the amount of apps you submitted to med school. Some people don't apply to enough schools. Or there could have been something on your application that was lacking, clinicals. Or, or even more granular, like the schools they ended up applying to. Some yeah, people yeah, could yeah. be like, oh, I yeah. applied to 40 medical schools. And you look at the list and they're like some of the top 50 medical schools. Yeah. And it's like, well, yeah, that makes sense. You didn't. It's not that you're a bad applicant and couldn't have gotten in somewhere. I'm sure somewhere would have loved to have you. It's just those ones didn't. 
Exactly. <laughs> Absolutely. Exactly. Yeah. Um, I, I, I definitely agree with the, the, the sense that like, you see people apply and apply and they are improving areas that don't need to be improved. Mm-hmm. It's not just MCAT, but maybe like, oh, I need more research. Or, or getting another. a master's when they already have a 3.8 or 7 right. or a good enough GPA. And if, they, oh, and if they've been out of like a class for a little while, then that's okay. Maybe yeah, you yeah, need yeah. to come back. But um, but I, yeah, I agree with that, is that they maybe zone in on something that they think is wrong, even if it's just like a slight smudge and it's not even a smudge. And then, yeah, they never actually improved anything. They're just kind of spinning their wheels. And they don't know uh, as a result. And that's the one part I don't really always like about that. Even like this uh, podcast itself, we were talking beforehand about what can we say and what can we not say because it's very much like, a oh, we can only reveal so much information. Um, but the problem is that it does create like this barrier for underrepresented groups because it's not just about is your MCAT good enough? It's about being a holistic. And if you don't know what that means as far as being holistic because you don't have a parent that's a physician or you don't have the uh, the money to hire a consultant, then how do you know? Like, you're just hoping that what you, you're doing is the right track or you're going on those Reddit forums and you're getting gaslit and you mm-hmm. go for whatever direction that is. Because uh, apparently 516 is whatever for, uh, assuming they're not Canadian, uh, is <laughs> yeah. like apparently for them, they didn't think it was good enough. I but. will say, to be fair, everyone was like, that. don't do that. Yeah, so at least I'm, I'm glad that, advice. okay, that's so We good. can use a more like, let's say somebody got a 510 or a 508. Let's mm-hmm. say somebody got a 508 and they're going on Reddit and they're like, oh my gosh, should I retake? Should I not even apply this year? I mean, there's so much nuance to an application that you really should not be going in as like an anonymous person on Reddit. (laughs) There's so much that is taken into account. Like you had said, underrepresented Mm. groups. Um, Life experiences experiences, All kinds of stuff that, you know, you shouldn't be posing that question to a Reddit forum unless you're, you know, got a 475. And also, Probably below a 500. I, I, let's say a 500, if it's across the board, every category, because there's basically biochemistry, cars, which is like whatever you want to call mm-hmm. cars, and psych. Um, if they're all equal, then it's like, okay, well, there's this person that's equal. But if you have it where they're like, they have 80 percentiles this thing and like a zero percentile in one of those categories, that's a little concerning right. for that category. Right. So it, you can say, hey, I, I got this amazing MCAT score because I got 100 percentiles in everything but bio and I just didn't even try with that. I got zero. You probably will still struggle getting in anywhere. I can't imagine a scenario where that happens, but I guess. Um But that's going to be a thing. And then the other side with it, too, is that cars, as I think, Mm -hmm. you know, a lot of the literature shows, is rather heavily biased to individuals that are born in the U.S. and speak English as their first language. 100%. And it's going to be lower for individuals that And it also depends on the amount of... uh enrichment they had in the household and throughout their childhood in terms or of just how much you've read how much yeah, yeah like, that's true it's yeah. a reading comprehension test right i mean not that right. uh critical analysis uh, isn't that what it stands for critical analysis and reasoning, and reasoning, and reasoning. Skills. Yeah. which is that doesn't <laughs> no it's definitely not i i'll be i had a very my mcat was um, unbalanced um it was low like if i tried to apply now i mean i and i'm sitting in admissions committee i mean it was a low mcat i got a 505 that's not very high, but it was super unbalanced. My car score was like 48 percentile. The other ones were high. They were in the 90s for the sciences, but 
It was a very unbalanced score. What a weird Cars section. is tough. Yeah. It's if you didn't get a good night's sleep the night before, you can't. So you can reason yeah. your way through the science that you've been learning for years, right? I had been mm. learning all these biology and chemistry um, concepts for years. So you can apply that stuff because you know it. It's your background knowledge. But for cars, you get an essay about 1800s house paint. Seriously, that was one of my passages. 1800s house paint. You're nervous. Maybe you're anxious. Maybe you only slept four hours a night before. It's mm -hmm. really hard to read that passage and predict what the author is going to say next when they give you like five very vague sentences. <laughs> which is the author most likely to say about 1900s house paint? It's very. It's, it's very tough. It's a very strange section and. Critical analysis and reasoning skills is tested throughout the entirety of the test. Yes, exactly. Like you're breaking down passages and questions and reasoning and using critical yeah. analysis yeah. throughout yeah. the whole thing. I don't know. I, I'm not even saying it should be changed. I don't know if it should be changed, but it was very weird. I don't think it should be changed, but I think, you know, it's up to each individual school and committee to sort of decide where they want to place that the emphasis of, of cars on because it, and you know this better, Dr. Bachman, um, how does it actually correlate to success in medical school? Or And I read, too, because AMC breaks down this data, that section does not correlate with your USMLE score. There's not only really a weak no. correlation between the bio biochem section and step one. Yeah. Um, and that's it. And then the strongest correlation is socioeconomic status for your first 18 years and mm. USMLE, or an NMCAT score. That's the strongest correlation, meaning that, you know, the lower your socioeconomic class was when you were in your developmental years the lower your score is going to be right, right um and that's the strongest correlation that they have to date yeah the bio one is definitely has the, the strongest correlation uh, and i think what's interesting though is a lot of what's happened with the newer exam is a heavy influence in biochemistry mm -hmm. not just the bio but the chem portion as well um so it's kind of caused this uh need to take biochemistry in undergrad now. It didn't mm -hmm. used to be that way. Uh, it used to be like immunology where you just kind of avoid it because you don't want to hurt your GPA or something. Uh, at least that's how it was when I, Wait, I went to Wait, you take immunology? You could. To avoid hurting your GPA? No, you, oh, no, you, avoided, no, you avoided immunology no. or oh. biochemistry or oh. both if you could. So oh, like it would be kind of a strategy of like which one do I either want to have to take or can oh, I just I avoid both? Oh, I say take both. They're such great classes. If you want to be prepared for medical school, you should take both. Yes. Um, but biochemistry now has almost become like a, a mood point. Like you should just take it because mm -hmm. it's going to help do you better on MCAT. And I can say going forward for our school, it's going to be a requirement for it. So you do have to take it if it you want to get It should be. Biochem is such an important yeah. foundational part of science. I, I agree. I took the first two. I took biochem one, biochem two. Cool. Yeah. I took immunology. I took genetic, like everything. Yeah. And I did um, not. You did not. <laughs> but that, so that made it so like for fundamentals, I... And this is don't don't ever do what I did. Um, but there, you, it was a relative coast for me until I got to CPR. Like I did not That's have right. to, you know, I studied, but not in the way that I should have. And I on the I flip side, I had I mean, I had taken biochem one, but my uh, basic science undergrad classes were basically the prereqs and a few other classes definitely didn't take immunology or anything like that. Fundamentals was a struggle for me, at least the first half or so, like when we were doing particularly immunology, genetics, and stuff, man, it was the toughest, one of the toughest parts of med school for me because I had never seen it before. And a little bit to address, because I, I, there's always this, I think, concern of imposter syndrome with people that apply and they get in and they're like, I haven't taken any of this. What am I going to do? On average, uh, for us, and I'm speaking from all the cohorts so far, uh, there's 12 to 13, depending if you include biostats, um, 
core topics and fundamentals. Um, on average, our matriculating student takes about five of those. So that means the rest of them they've never seen in their, their entire career, at least in a class. Um, and oh, they do well, though, right? They, they do. They, they, okay. Yeah. They, I mean, it's not like everyone's dropping out. No, so. <laughs> this is true. So they're not really, like, you can manageable go, yeah. subjects. And they're yes. good subjects. And they're things that you should already have an inkling of an interest in anyways to begin with if yeah. you want to be a and doctor. I say that I struggled because it was it was difficult, but yeah. I still got through it. I still exactly. learned yeah. immunology. You got through and you did good. You just struggled because you're a perfectionist. You're you very disciplined. <laughs> you um, also think that. And you're taking these. Like, and I may have told you this before, but you're taking these things that are not tangible and you're trying to see them in your head, right? I think you did exercise physiology. Was that your – so you can you can see that. You can see a body moving. You can understand – like, you know what a muscle looks like. But when you ask – if I asked you, what, is it, what does IL-6 look like? You're like, I don't even know what that is. I, don't, I can't even conceive in my brain. No one knows anything is like, until I hear it like, the first time. Yeah. But those tiny little things, like, mm -hmm. you can't it's see It's molecular. Them. Yeah. yeah it's, 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 it's difficult. But it's still cool. Oh, it's fascinating. Yeah. I love learning it. Don't get me wrong. That's yeah. why I'm here. Um, but it, I'm just saying it was challenging not having a background. Yeah. It, yeah. It would be, I imagine it would be extremely challenging because also when you take fundamentals and you, it's 12 weeks. 12 right? weeks, yeah. And you, like my immunology class was 16 weeks. So it, yeah. it, you, I can see if you're smushing it all in, the stress. I got to know all this. I got to know all this. Taking 12, which yeah. would have been semester long courses into all into 12 weeks. So yeah, one week per each of those. That's rough. No. It's a lot. Yeah. That's rough. I can right. see the, and I saw it in the stress. And that's the stress why you have a lot of that panic when you, you matriculate, or once you see what fundamentals is. But as long as you focus and you, you also seek out the help you need if you you don't know how to study for this if you reach out either to a peer near peer or you know, dr tulchinski who is our uh, learning resource um mentor i think yeah. that's the right title um academic academic success coach oh, there yeah, we yeah, go yeah. <laughs> sorry dr Tulchinsky. this is where the term uh, high yield comes into play it, it, it is yes. when i first started here i hated that and i hated that people <laughs> said that i was like what are you talking about? it's all high yield but it's true High yield information is very important when you're dealing with such a large amount of stuff in a really short amount of time. You get lost in the sauce. I get. I love being in the sauce, but it's stressful. Yeah, but you can drown. <laughs> yeah, well, I have drowned. So. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, that's a. Uh, I mean, those are I think concerns that was students uh, coming in. Uh, I don't think it necessarily hinders them from applying at all. But, no, no. Uh, I think so. You just want your basic prereqs. Yeah. Um. But. Beyond that, like if we see candidates who have taken, you know, things that are pa that they're passionate about, yeah. we don't. Nobody ever has issue with that. If you're taking film in the 1940s, which was the hardest class I've ever taken, then we're not gonna, you know, discredit anybody for that. That's cool. You had a different interest. You wanted to take it. Yeah. Um. So go going off that, did you want to go into kind of our like not to take too much time, but to talk about your kind of I guess going back to your pre med years, what you studied, how it went for you, and mm -hmm. vice versa. Yeah, yeah, let's do that. You mentioned film. Yeah, well, if anybody listened before, if they didn't, uh, I have a film degree, but I'm a bit of a non-traditional student. I call myself a traditional non-traditional um, <laughs> because I studied film when I went to college, you know, at, at, right out of high school at 18. Um, and then I worked in film and photography for a few years, for about six years. And then I went back to school um, because I wanted to be a doctor. So I got, I went back to school Fully, I didn't know what to do. I had no no guidance in that regard. Um, I was going to a state school, 
um, in Denver that had just, it was just the school that was nearby. It had just become a university. It was a, co- a community college for a really long time or a college for a long time. Um, and so I just enrolled there because it was open enrollment. And I was like, okay, I think I have to take biology classes. I took it. I loved it. I saw what a, like a protein, a globular protein thing looked like. I thought that was so cool. So then I took chemistry classes and then I took physics classes and then I took um, math. And uh, instead of doing just prereqs, I was like, you know what? Let me just do this for four years. Let me get the full degrees, the experience. I got a biology degree and I also got a chemistry degree. And then I went straight into med school. Um, Academically, that's the stuff I did. How I studied, I guess I only took for those four straight years, I only took upper division or science courses and then upper division. I didn't have to do any of like the English history stuff like that. So it was all very a science heavy four years, but I loved it. I had never known this stuff existed. Um, and it was just super fun to learn. Uh, and academically, I did well. I think it was just because I liked the stuff so much. Um, we had small classrooms at my school. There was only like 20 kids in each class. So you had these professors that were very accessible. Um, you could always ask questions. Um, and then for the stuff that I did outside, like for the more well-roundedness, I had uh, got accepted for an internship at the University of Colorado Hospital. And it was this medicine internship. They select a few students uh, from our, from my school, Metro State, to go and you go around to all the different departments at Anschutz Hospital and you, you, you observe. It's like a full semester, so it's like four months. That's pretty cool. Of shadowing, observing, everything. I was in the ER, I was in the cardiothoracic surgery, I was in the ICU, and I was in oncology. And I got to see so much. Um, it was incredible. And for clinicals, that, that's, that's all I did. I shadowed some radiation oncologists too on my own, um, but that's I didn't have a job. In this was the first time in my life I had never had a job, so it was very strange for me. Yeah, you say you never yeah. had a job. Well, that was just during your these, yeah. This these is when few I years. so like I went back to your traditional undergrad experience at the age of twenty eight years old. So I had you know twenty nine. Um, the traditional I, non-traditional thing sounds dumb until you realize no yeah, it's, it's true it's yeah. like if you had so, put that timeline at age 18 you'd be a very traditional student yes but it's, instead of me I'm like 28 29 years old with the 18 year olds and it's it's so much fun um, and I'm not I don't have a job so I feel like a kid in a candy store like I get to go to school full-time and learn about proteins and the central dogma of biology. I did a derivative for the first time in my life when I was 30. It was incredible. And then we did integrals. I learned all that in Cal. It was really cool. Um, and then I'm just, you know, going to the hospital, observing all these specialties. I really felt like I'd, you know, won the lottery. So I want to say just like I wasn't on the committee when uh, you all got accepted and everything. But just like listening to that mm-hmm. story, I can say like there was a lot of strengths that came out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, first being like, you're, this is someone that went back to school later in life. So you took a, a adult uh, conscious decision to mm-hmm. make this life change instead of just being, I'm just rolling from high school to college because my parents told me to. And there's nothing wrong with that. But like it shows that like this was very intentional. And you can see that you took that and then you paired that with all these kind of clinical activities uh, that you knew what you wanted to do. This was a, a big risk for you because uh, you switched your careers, mm-hmm. but you went forward with it. So that, I'm sure the committee, I don't, again, I don't know. I'm sure they spoke to that, showing your commitment to wanting to be in this field. And that means yeah. a lot when we look through, uh, when you get an interview like that. So, and, I mean, you know. 
I owned my own business. I, you know, I had all my production gear, everything. I just put it in a closet and went back to school like Rodney Dangerfield in, in the movie. <laughs> <laughs> back to school. Did you watch like, that movie? Oh and then my you're God, like, of course. Ah. Yeah, I, yeah, I watched the movie and I was like, aha, that's what I'm going to do with my life. <laughs> um, no, but I, I just, you know, I packed it all up and I was like, yeah, let's do something. Let me do something different. And, you know, I used to, when I grew up growing up, I never thought doctoring would ever be a thing for people of my kind, right? So uh, it was uh, always seemed like a long shot for me, but I figured, eh, why not? Um, and then research. I had research, too. Um, I, I met some, like I said, small school. We had a lot, not a small school, big school, but small classrooms. Um, we had a lot of PhDs working there, a lot of young PhDs that are awesome and had their own labs. So I did some, just some wet science lab work, um, environmental, like I would collect uh water from the rivers in Denver and then um, isolate the bacteroides. I remember um, this. <laughs> and then uh, we would see, you know, where the river poop river stuff was coming from. And then I did some chemistry research, too, with teeth. Uh, and then I applied to med school. Cool. Service stuff. Service stuff is important. I had service. Um, so since I started at Metro, probably I did three years of we do this thing called Summer Science Institute. Um, every summer, we have kids come in from the surrounding Denver Metro uh, school districts that are a little bit um, underfunded. Uh, we come in; they come in for the summer for free. We teach them science. Um, I was I was part of the chemistry wing of it, so we did all kinds of neat experiments with them. We even have them do a project over the summer, and then we do a little mini conference where they make posters. Yeah. Um, and I did that every year, and started a pre health. Um, society at the university which never had one because it's a commuter school and full of students like me who had no idea how to go to med school and I think from my class from my year only two of us made it to med school and this is a, a school with you know 28,000 attendees yeah. so only two of us made it um but it, hopefully that number increases every year yeah so <laughs> that's that's it that was my journey oh and I applied to um 37 schools, wow. 37 MD programs, and I think I applied to maybe 12 DO programs. And of those, I got four MD interviews and three DO interviews. Um, so you got to apply wide. I assume your GPA is pretty solid too. Yes, uh, my GPA, well, so I had a film degree, and that was back when I was 18 working full time. I worked full time in Las Vegas. I never had that, you know, you're 18, you're going to college thing. I went to, you know, college in Las Vegas because that's where I got in. I studied film, but I also worked 40 hours a week at the Luxor Casino, the Pyramid, um, for the Blue Man Group show selling tickets. Um, so, I mean, we're talking like eight hours a day plus school. My GPA was kind of low. That was like a 3.2. Um, but it was all... I only took two science classes. And that was your first bachelor's degree. My first bachelor's degree. A while degree. ago. A while ago. So I took two science classes. They were both A's. I took a geology class where we looked at rocks. That's why you got in. And an astronomy <laughs> class. Just and then so when I when I went to Metro, my GPA there with the, the biology and chemistry degree, just taking only biology, chemistry, physics, and math classes, that GPA was like a 3.9. So that one combined with a 3.2 gave me a total of a 3.6 and then a science GPA of a 3.9. Which is great. Yeah. yeah. And then an MCAT that was not, not so great. Um, a 505, very unbalanced, high science scores, 
low social score so, and, <laughs> and low cars. Um, so that that was my. I had a few more thoughts of mm-hmm. what, from what you said with that too. Is that like you fit a lot of other boxes that I think are like things that committees like to see. Is that like you worked uh, in a job that wasn't just like this is going to be like my job in the future. I work. I'm working in like a hospital or something. And there's nothing wrong with doing those things and those that look good on your CV as well. But like seeing that you're working with people. Because this is a service job in a lot of ways. And oh, yeah. seeing that it, in many, many ways. I had people throw drinks and pins in my face all the time. Drunk people in Las Vegas, rude. And the fact that you were able to continue being employed well, I, I, there. I had to pay my rent and eat. Said, so, right. yeah. But like, you experience that. You have that mm-hmm. idea. So when you have patients come in and maybe similar life experience, you can, I don't know, uh, relate to that like, a little bit, you know, have empathy a bit with it. Hopefully you can anyway. But, like, it just shows on paper that you have that experience and that you can bring that to uh, your experience here as well. Um, yeah, all of that really speaks well. Because the thing with, a, and for again, anyone that's a later in life applicant, uh, later in life, whatever you want to call it, uh, non-traditional. It's okay, I'm old. <laughs> the oldest person in the room here. Frankly, later in life means like 25. Yeah. Like, so that's not that old. But like, um, for any, like, if you have like a rough start with your undergrad and it's just not, good enough maybe for you to be able to apply to medical school go again like you can most of the time i know personally if i see you did a master's and even if it was just all basic sciences for your undergrad and you completely got f's and you went to that master's and you got all a's i'm just looking at that master's yep. Yep. not not everyone sees that way but that's how i see it especially if there's a gap too. of time in right? committee when i see that that's a reset button for yeah. me yeah Especially it's like two years went by, you did something, now you went back to school, and suddenly it's amazing. I'm glad to hear that. Yeah. It should be a reset. Yeah, because otherwise, what are you doing? Like, it I would shouldn't feel like bad. stick yeah. with yeah. you for life. Like, or, I, no, people make mistakes. People learn. They grow. Like, and then masters yeah. shouldn't exist if that's the case. Like, exactly. if it's just like a oh, scarlet letter for life, then stop advertising these masters. Then. Yeah, I like, can go on my SMP diatribe later, <laughs> but, um, but maybe uh, let's Mitch's? go. Let's talk about Mitch's. Yeah. His is far more interesting. Please. My forever hype woman. Um, <laughs> no, I mean, it's definitely different. Uh, so I went to college out of high school. Uh, my goal was just to play football and student came second. So I went to UCF, which was it, you know, 45 minutes from my hometown. It was like my dream place to go for school. Uh, I was a preferred walk-on quarterback. So like they recruited me without a scholarship kind of later, um, which I was happy to do. I was happy to play there. Um, played for two seasons there, had a great time, learned a ton. Uh, it was my first exposure to sports medicine in a way, just being an athlete, you know, kind of, you know numerous injuries that everybody inevitably gets. So that was honestly my first time meeting physical therapists, sports medicine physicians, um, aside from just a primary care doctor or pediatrician, that was my first exposure to anything. Um, and I really liked it. Um, I was always drawn to strength conditioning and nutrition. Just It was also really my first um, exposure because you know, Division One athletic programs have awesome strength conditioning programs. Um, and I was, I was fascinated just like how you know, Olympic lifts work, how training periodization and programming works. I thought it was fascinating. So it was really my first exposure to like human health and wellness, just that kind of broad field. Um, I realized after a couple seasons, I wasn't going to go to like the NFL, which a lot of athletes uh, like, you know, a lot of athletes, especially when you go to like a D1 program, you're like, dang, maybe I can make it. And even in those top programs, only a single digit percentage make it to the professional league. So it's a a big wake up call for a lot of people when you realize it's not going to be you. So I, I spent about a year after 
playing football there not knowing what I was doing. I had switched my major from, I started off with a pre, it was a criminal science pre-law, or criminal justice pre-law. I, I didn't know what I was doing, to be honest. I took my first political science class, absolutely hated it. So I switched to sport and exercise science because, you know, it sounded like something <laughs> I was interested in at that time. And I'm really glad I did. Um, started taking, and, and still not even thinking about medical school at this point, started taking classes uh, like biomechanics and you know, nutrition and like exercise physiology. Um, took my first exercise anatomy class. I think it was called exercise anatomy. Um, it, was, it was like a human anatomy class built for the exercise physiology major. So um, that was my first anatomy class. I just thought that was really fascinating. Um, and I believe, uh, yeah, so I went and started strength conditioning coaching with UCF. Um, I knew somebody just uh, from my time as an athlete. I got hired kind of as like a volunteer strength coach. I helped out with women's rowing and cheerleading, um, like the co-ed cheerleading, and helped strength coach them with the um, you know uh, hired strength coaches. Learned a lot about Olympic lifting and just kind of more about strength programming and stuff. And one of the strength coaches was going to PA school soon. And he was like, honestly, my first uh, conversation with somebody that was like going into medicine. And he was just telling me about like what PA was, what it involved. And I was like, oh, that sounds really cool. I remember I, I have no exposure to medicine. So this is like my first little, oh, that's kind of neat. Um, so I looked into it and it sounded like a cool career. Uh, so like some months later, I realized, um, you know, maybe I should get clinical experience if I'm going to possibly pursue this route. Um, so I signed up for EMT school over the summer between, I think, sophomore and junior year of college. I did a 12-week EMT course at Seminole State College, shout out. Great place, actually. Uh, Sounds very similar to the place you went. Yeah. yeah. It was a great school. I think I paid $1,200 cash, did the program over the summer. It was awesome. I met uh, friends I still have to this day, one of which is also just matched uh, with us in this class. Not in our class, but like this same year. Ended oh, awesome. up, uh, he's on an ER doctor. He's going to be an ER doctor. So mm-hmm. met some great people. EMT professor was amazing too. Um, great experience. So I did that, um, got my license, but I had just got a job as an anatomy TA at UCF, um, like a assistant TA type deal. So I did that first semester, got paid pretty good money doing TA stuff. And then after that little contract ended, I started my first job as an EMT. Still kind of thinking PA school sounds cool. Um, I started working at a place called American Ambulance. Uh, very interesting <laughs> company. I don't think it exists anymore. I think it was bought out making $9 an hour as an EMT on a ambulance. It was beautiful. Oh, cool. Yeah. Um, so it was really fun, though. I mean, you come out of EMT school knowing very, very little. Like, I mean, not that you don't know anything, but it's very basic level medicine, BLS, like basic life support, give oxygen, transport, you know. Uh, but, uh, you know, they teach you how to do a patient assessment and how to do minimal therapies, and it's it's cool. And doing that, I got to, you know, have patients of my own in some regard, and I got to go to nursing homes and transport patients from the nursing home to the ER or from, you know, uh, discharge admissions back to nursing homes or assisted living facilities. Some of them were like hospital-hospital transports uh, if they needed like higher levels of care. So I got to see a lot of different things. I got to talk with nurses and talk with doctors. Even when we would take patients to the ER, like you would give report to the doctor or to the nurse. And that was a lot of exposure really quickly in those nine months I was there of all the different potentials. Like it wasn't just PA anymore. There's, you know, nursing, you can go paramedic, you can go paramedic to nursing. And and then I actually saw what physicians did. And I didn't really have any exposure to physicians before that point. Um, so then I realized that every time I would drop off a patient at the ER, I was really curious as to what was going to happen next. And I, I really love learning. So I think it's, this is kind of a natural path of how it you know, progressed from one thing to the next. But 
every time I would leave, I'm like, man, what happened to them? What are they going to do? Are they going to get admitted? So then I was like, I need to work in the ER. <laughs> so I, uh, I found, I started looking for jobs and you typically needed some experience to work in the ER as a tech or an EMT. So it was good that I was working for the ambulance company. Um, I finished my bachelor's degree in the meantime, doing exercise science. Um, hadn't really taken too many, uh, pre-med courses at this time. I think I finished uh, six months after I started this ER tech job. Um, and I had started taking pre-med type coursework in the meantime. So I took like organic one, two, biochem, got C's in all of them. Nice. Shout out past me. Um, <laughs> and, uh, but if I got- you're listening. <laughs> there's, a, there's a good ending. Uh, I got the job in the ER as an ER tech uh, at Florida Hospital Altamont, which is an amazing experience. Um, worked there for two and a half years. So after I graduated in December, I knew that I needed to retake those C's because those are very important classes. So I retook those, got A's in all of them, kind of revamped my study habits, took a few other uh, like molecular biology. I think I took endocrinology and something else um, and I got A's in all of them, which is helpful to raise my GPA a little bit. My science GPA got rose a little bit and I, and I retook the C's. I remember for DO programs, they would replace your uh, lowest grade at the time. So like those mm -hmm. Cs were effectively canceled out in your GPA calculation. For MD, there was an average of the two. Um, and I think they actually changed that rule for DO admissions at like that cycle where, or maybe it was a cycle after where like it no longer canceled out and people were in uproars about it because oh, wow. some people had retaken uh, like tons of Fs even. And then all of a sudden it's like that no longer, it was a big, I remember it being a big deal. Um, but regardless, retook those classes. Um, I applied with a 3.41 cumulative GPA and a 3.27 science GPA. Um, after I finished classes, I spent four months studying for the MCAT and I got a 512. I was working three days a week, 12 hour shifts, and I would study the other four. Nice. Um, and I was also working full time the last year of college. So I tried to work as much as I could and balance I would like work Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and take classes Tuesday, Thursday. That was like my typical schedule. So, wow. and I would, it was, it was a lot. It was a lot of time working and studying and studying while working when I had downtime. Um, but it was good. It helped me like hone my, my skills as a student and time management and stuff. Um, so did well in the MCAT, lower GPA. Applied to, I think, not too many schools. And I didn't really meet with an advisor or anything to talk <laughs> about how many schools. I think I applied to around 20 or 25. I think 10... I want to say 8DO and like 14 MD, something like that. You uh, wanted to stay here, right? You wanted to stay in the region. So we're in Central Florida. Um, I had recently gotten married. So like, yeah, we would like to stay in Florida, ideally. I applied Southeast only um, to those roughly 20 or so schools. I got six, no, seven DO acceptances overall in um, one MD interview at moved to here. And this was definitely later in the cycle. Um, I had applied... Um, to only, you know, I think I had heard back from UCF had put me in like this um, aorta group. I don't know if me you, too. yeah, it yeah, was I like, was in their aorta group. oh man, I was, yeah. that was my dream school was yeah. UCF. Cause I went there, they had a newer MD program and I was like, wow, that'd be amazing if I could stay here. Um, and they just kept me in that forever. So that, whatever. Rude. Me too. I sent yeah. them an update letter to them. Like, I, got <laughs> I did too. I was like, this is my, <laughs> long story short, I remember, um, because obviously we're the first class, the uh, applications for NSUMD had opened in like November. Mm -hmm. And I remember because I, I had already, 
I think I had just got accepted to, I believe, Campbell University, like one of the DO schools. I was really happy, obviously. And they, oh, NSUMD opened and I talked to Marissa. I'm like, should I apply to this place? Like, you know, it's one more place in Florida. Why not? Yeah, sure. It's only 30 bucks or whatever. So I applied and got an interview in like January and, you know, loved it. And it's a, it was an in-state school close to home being part of the first class. It was a no brainer for us. Um, so yeah, that was my like speed run nutshell journey. Um, a, a lot of growth as a student through freshman year of college to uh, attending here for sure. And since it seems like I'm just judging both of your applications no, that I you read, read out. Um, yeah, this let me in. Buddy. Can you let me in? Yeah, <laughs> I think I can see why they let you in. Yes. Um, but like seeing that growth is nice. That's like what you want to see is someone that's, they don't, it's great if you just have a 4.0. Sure, that's amazing. But like to see someone that struggled and then go to like get better, that means you did something about that. That means if you get here, which for anyone about to matriculate, you're in for a fun time. It's going to be challenging, mm-hmm. no matter whether, no matter what, no matter, yeah, what. No matter what your GPA was. I honestly, and this I'm speaking broadly, but I do find that students that maybe never went through any challenges, like had always been a 4.0 and they're right out of a college maybe struggle a lot more uh, because it's really hard to acclimate to the idea that uh, you are now in the 1% of the 1% as far as like knowledge goes. And it's, this is the big times as far as uh, exams and everything. And you're going to struggle a little bit and it's okay. Um, That being said, it's nice seeing that on a record that you already understand that that's a process and how to adapt to that process. Plus, there was a reason for the lower GPA, right? It's like this is a, a D1 ath- division like athlete. Oh, this is, that was yeah. the other thing I want to yeah. – so I want to start with I have come around to this. Uh, but when I first uh, did <laughs> under uh, did admissions, I was very confused how like some of the ones that had been there for a while uh, were very big on athletes that were D1. I, I had known nothing about sports, so I apologize. But like big <laughs> sports stuff. Like I, I know it's like a, a serious thing. Um because I was like, well, what's that have to do with medicine? I didn't really understand it. But I, I do appreciate now that I've been, you know, course director for uh, this and seeing uh, applicants that have that on their degree. It's that you're working in a team. You're working with very specific rules and expectations with very specific timelines, and you're adhering to those. That's a lot of being a good medical student. Is Discipline, discipline. They exactly. Discipline. Yeah. Yes. And, I mean, I think it's – yeah, when I was thinking about just going you know, back in my head through all the different interviews and what they ended up asking me about and like retroactively what I think may have gotten me accepted to a few DO schools in here was just, I think the football stood out and it represents a lot of stuff just like, you know, to even get it onto a team takes some sort of like uh, discipline or mm-hmm. like characteristics. Yep. All, yep. Everyone who's on the team has those in some way, shape or form. Um, I think the clinical experience having like close to well, over three years by the time I started was helpful, and I had a lot to talk about in that regard. Yeah. And then I really knew what I was getting into. At least I felt like I did. Obviously, like a lot of stuff <laughs> happens here. <laughs> um, and then just like the growth as a student, because a lot of them asked me, you know, hey, you got uh, like four C's on your transcript, three of which are in these like core prereqs. I know you retook them, but like, what happened? And I was able to, <laughs> I was able to be like, yeah, I definitely wasn't a great student at one point, but. I turned it around. I learned from my mistakes. And I think having a higher MCAT helped me bolster that yeah. argument. Because yeah. if yeah. I hadn't, yes. it would have been a tougher sell. Yes. Yeah, The ba- one or the other always helps like balance the other uh, out. Like what I look at with the transcripts versus the MCAT. The MCAT means uh, you're 
boil down what it, that would translate to step one or anything else is that you know how to take a standardized test, uh, which is great. But that's not the everything that we want to see because we will be seeing you for four years and we'd like to see that you're not going to just be test takers. Um, so the other part is also seeing like the transcripts as far as uh, knowledge goes because like you said, fundamentals is a lot. Uh, so if you are taking what was stretched out versions of what we were about to hit and you were struggling the entire time, that's also a concern because like you're going to get here and yeah, by, by maybe by the time you get to the step one, you'll be okay. But you got to get there first. So if you're failing out in your first course, then it's not going to be a good time. But for what you were saying, yeah, the C's, for anyone listening that is an expiring medical student, isn't the end of the world. Um, it, I could go on record here and be like, I got a C in Orgo 1. So, yeah, yeah. It's, like, I, I got so, a C so minus in Orgo 2. I know. <laughs> I like, How dare you? Ew. It's, yeah, I just, I just, yeah, how embarrassing. Uh, but, <laughs> hey, UF Orgo was it was challenging. So shout out to everyone that had to deal with that. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> you know, it, it was pretty rough. And it, was, it was all UL because they had to make it challenging for pre-meds. Yeah, like, pre-meds go are going to pre-med. That's my saying. Like, they I'm, always got to do that stuff. Rude. Yeah, what are you going to do? I met um, some of the most annoying pre-meds oh in my God, life in too. organic chemistry. Me I didn't too. hang out with pre-med kids except for one. Mike, shout out Mike Lazarchik. He was like my only hey, pre-med friend. Dude, there was this kid <laughs> in my organic one class. I'll never forget. He, we would like, they would hand out the test in person. It was very strange. And then like people would talk about their grades with their little click. And this one kid would like, like flaunt his grade to everyone in the front oh. row. It was so cringy. Yeah, I don't do that. It. Like to his little click of pre-med. Um, but anyway, <laughs> I guess back to missions. Uh, yes, you would... Um, I don't know if you, you, you even call it like a diamond in the rough because of your thing, but I think you had a lot to offer in that packet. And I think what it comes down to is being able to get through the mass amount of applications that come in. So all of you, in a way, it wasn't that you weren't like, oh, it was a smaller poll, so that's how you got shown. but Because you were all qualified to get into any medical school. But it's a matter of showing yourself in the mass amount of applications that come in mm -hmm. because I think it's a misnomer that they and not always cause don't just think oh it's just because I didn't I got unlucky maybe there's things you need to improve with your uh, trans uh, your your packet but there's a lot that we simply just can't interview we don't have the bandwidth we have like so X amount of days to interview people and we try to pick ones that fit our mission and uh, including diversity uh, underrepresented groups and on the like but we have only 14 spots, I think, per day, and we go longer than most schools for admission cycles. And still, there'll be hundreds of ones that on paper qualify, but we can't interview them all. That's 14 spots per week. Per week. For, for our, we only interview once a week. So that's it, 14. I think we get through maybe 400 or so. Wow. And we had 6,000 applications this year? Something like that, yeah. Wow. I yeah. No, Mitch, we got lucky. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, that's what Dr. Abelion, <laughs> no. he said basically yeah. the same thing. He was like, you know, for, every, for your spot, there's 10, 50 other students, however, mm -hmm. whatever number you want to pick. He that, said five. I think it's hundreds. I think, yeah. Yeah. Regardless, there's a lot it's of students. Yeah. There's a lot of students who could have done just as well as you. Better and than me. it's a gift to be here at the it's end of the day. It's such a gift. And I think we, I mean, to, to go back to your Reddit question, because I know <laughs> we have to wrap up soon. But I have a Reddit question? The one that you said, the 516, oh, should I retake? the question somebody so posed. So if yeah. any of those, if that guy's listening or that person's listening, whoever I, you are. I, they're not. I didn't have a 516. Um, Mitch had close to that, but if, his if, GPA uh, was lower 
So just this goes to show that you know when I when I got my MCAT score back, I I was like oh, I, I can't apply. It's horrible. You know, it's a bad score. Oh my gosh, and it's so unbalanced. They're not. They're gonna think I'm weird. I am weird. Um, but I, I thought I couldn't apply. I had a friend, um, and she said, no, apply anyways. See what happens. And luckily, somebody saw something nice in my application at a few schools. So it worked out. So that means you should just you should still apply. I think there's two major things, because we talked about a lot with numbers, uh, and all those will help you get through that screening phase. And it will get you, probably even when you get reviewed by the committee, if you get an interview, to do fairly well. Um, but there's two, maybe three factors that really matter, uh, one of them being the actual interview day, which I guess we can go to next. Um, but the other two are for the packet. Like, one, you are very clear why you want to go into medicine and as an MD. Not just that you like the idea of health profession, because you could be a nurse, you could be a dentist, you could be a PA. All of those are great positions. They're all valuable to this community. So unless you make a clear case for why you want to be an MD versus any of those, it's not compelling enough to me. Because like everyone can make something of, I really like interacting with patients. Well, why not be in a PA? Like, what is it about an MD role that makes it for you? And I know. I just I think that's so important. And I think if you don't have a clear cut answer to that question, you need to take time to decide if one of those other roles may be better for you in your life aspirations, because Mm -hmm. being a nurse might fit way better with what you want to do in your life or a paramedic or a respiratory therapist. Like there's so many careers involved in medicine. You're going to be working alongside these people, but maybe being a physician isn't for you. And if it is, you should definitely have a compelling answer as to why it is. Definitely. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it, it's not like there's one answer. It's like it's going to be a different answer for any person that applies. Uh, and that's important, too, that it, it rings true to what you've done and it makes sense per your journey. Um, and the other part is honestly just um, if you're going to apply, um, one thing I sometimes can tell with applicants is maybe they're like, oh, we, we'll apply to this school because I think this is a safety school, which there's no safety schools in medicine, just so you know. No. Um, you there are know. none. Uh, but <laughs> Well... I should say there and are USMD. Yes, USMD as well. I, mean. I think there are state schools at small states that only take their types, like Texas, Nevada. Um, you know, probably maybe, Washington. Maybe more safe, but no. yeah, more but they're, safe, st- but they're more safe, but not complete safeties. But there are some states that are very much. We are only going to take Nevadans. Right. And we're only going to take Texas. But then it's only safe for those. Correct. I think I I know what you're saying in that. But you don't have to compete with the Californians, which is the number one exporter of pre-meds. The average applicant can't (laughs) think, the average applicant can't think, oh, these schools are safe. They're like, AKA, I will get into these. Right. It's not guaranteed or or likely. I'm thinking it more like a backup thing. Because I've seen sometimes we have what's called a secondary. So most schools offer a secondary. It's a second set of questions that are about the school and not just the basic packet that you put in your AMCAS. And I've seen it before where they're clearly mailed that in. They, they, yeah, they're repeating, they're recycling secondaries from other schools. It doesn't fit, but they're trying to make it fit. I see this all the time. Don't even bother to look up what PBL means at all. It's just like things like that. You're right. We are not a safety school. I don't think people should consider us a safety school, especially with the amount of apps we get and the small amount of seats that we have. Um, People think that probably because we're a private school and we're not a state school. And so in that regard, we could take anybody from anywhere, right? We don't have to commit ourselves to Floridians. I know there's some gray zones with that, but some state schools, like they will preference their own residents. 
Um, but sure. I think that's why we get the the mark of safety school. And maybe I think the part that makes me the most irritated with that, and if you are an aspiring medical student, do not do this. Uh, is we will have people that accept interviews and they will ghost us the day before or even the day of. Um, oh. And that is one spot that we can't fill. Well, could have gone to someone that wanted it. People have done that. That is People rude. People have done that. That's rude. So if you are doing, if you're applying for medical medical school now or next year, don't ghost. It's, well, it's really no, just hurting your, know, everyone else. Or just else. don't take the interview or just email. Let well, us know. I mean, that carries over into residency and the rest of your life. That's just unprofessional. Yeah. yeah. Inconsiderate. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And it doesn't hurt us uh, per se. Uh, it does hurt everyone else of your peers. Mm-hmm. That could That's one person that maybe they had that interview. They would have shined and they would have gotten in. That's and, a good point. Yeah. Right. And hmm. please don't ever do that. Yeah. Please don't ever do please that. Please don't. <laughs> I, I, but it happens. Don't. If it happens, just don't do it. It's very annoying. Um, but maybe for the rest of the time, you want to talk about the actual interview day and like, and then the what we look at for that interview. Yes. Yeah. So for for our interday, our there's, so there's several types of interviews you yes. can have. You can have a traditional interview where they sit down with your application and they you know they ask you questions. One Mitch, on one. Sounds like you had that, right? Yeah, maybe one on one or a couple or three people usually at the most interviewing you as an individual applicant. I had a few um, interviews like that. Um, this is an interesting type. I had a group interview, um, not like a PBL group, but like me and three other applicants with like five interviewers all asking us about our applications in front of each other. Um, not weird at all. Uh, <laughs> that's, that's pretty weird. <laughs> um, and then you can have the, the very popular, and this is pretty much, I think probably the majority of schools are doing the MMI, which stands for multiple mini interviews. And the idea is that it's supposed to give you several, several shots at, at doing well in a different room. It's about six to seven minutes in a room. There's a scenario on the door or a scenario on the screen. If it's virtual now, there's a scenario. You have about a minute to read it. You go in and you wax poetic on this scenario for six minutes, and then you just leave the room. Uh, and that's the MMI. Just for clarification, I'm not no. a huge fan of it. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, I, I, that description was perfect. For, that's what I prepared for going in. You don't end up talking for six minutes straight, so don't no, feel like don't. please don't. Yeah, please don't. No. <laughs> like it would the. This is how it was for me. Tell me your experience, but like, yeah, you read the thing for a minute or however much time they give you. One, two minutes. They tell you to go in. You go in. There's someone there. Hey, how you doing? All right, and then you talk through the scenario. I remember talking for maybe a minute to two minutes, uh, giving my explanation. And then a lot of times, sometimes they wouldn't really respond. And like when you stop talking is that was the end of the station. But a lot of them, they would ask me follow up questions. And then it just became almost like an interview where they had just asked you a question. Yes. If you're lucky, you got that. You you got that. Um, and, And most of mine were like that, too. But some people take it quite literally and they go in and they will talk for six minutes. And you, then they'll leave. You oh, got to yeah. read the yeah. room. I feel like at a certain point in your waxing poetic, you you stop, <laughs> you pause for maybe three seconds, and they're either going to stare at you and keep listening because they expect you to say more, or maybe you're done, or they'll just ask you a question. And yeah. I think you can kind of read that. Yep. I'm, I've done some of the MMI from the interview perspective, and yeah, there's like there'll be ones where they just keep on talking, and I, you, I try. I'm like. Yeah, that, no, that's what you I, don't want to do is talk for six like, minutes, and, and they want to ask you follow-up questions, mm-hmm. and they can't. 
Yeah. That's not great. So it's like I, I, it's even worse when they don't even get the prompt correctly. So they talk five minutes or six minutes about something completely off, and you're like, "Wow, <laughs> did not expect it to go this way." But hey, it's some of the MMIs that I went on when I applied had like different rooms that had actors in them, and I had to break bad news to oh, a patient yeah. or tell my group mate that they weren't holding up their end of the group work. Um, but you had to do it with an actor, and then it's just someone sitting in the corner with a pad of paper looking at you. Um, I, and then some of them had like group buildings. Like one one of them, we we I sat back to back with another applicant and told them how to build a Lego, and then we reversed. It I've was, seen those before. That so was fun. I think, and you may get different advice, but I think Sam and I are similar in the fact that we don't really formally prepare for interviews. Never. Uh, I nope. didn't for a residency. I didn't nope. for medical school. I didn't do any mock interviews. I did one here because it was required for a for a residency, which was fine. Um, but as far as these situations, like, please do not. If anything, maybe look at some questions just to ease your mind. But don't like practice answers to common in my questions. It's awful because then you're trying to memorize things and then you're trying to recall what you memorized, which will make you weird. You got to go into these things fresh and just you kind of got to wing it. Yeah, you got to do the off-the-cuff answer, right? Because they're looking yeah. at how you reason through things. Yep. Yep. And like I said, you memorize something and you get something that's similar and it's not the same. It's like a Xerox copy of a Xerox copy. It's going to sound so weird when you <laughs> yeah, come up with that. Yeah, I've, like I've been through those, you know, just, as an yeah. interviewer. And they're more – I just count the time it's painful. until they're done because I can't stand it. Um, and then yeah. we at our school, we are the only ones to do this. As far as we know, we have a yeah. PBL session. Yeah. Um, and that session is for the candidates to see how they like PBL and um, for us to see – you know how they like PBL. That, that's it. Yeah, it's just. Uh, I mean, we do look at it as far as how they perform. I know we say like, you know, we're not, we're not scoring per se, but I mean, we still well, take. I never them. tell them we're not scoring. I just say this is time for you to just relax, have fun. Relax, yeah, have fun. I mean, Which it is, is a fun. mock PBL session. That's the point of it. Yeah, it's you know, it's um, you know, just be, be nice to the people in your group. Man. Uh, there's a pro tip too if you're interviewing, yeah. especially in person, and virtual too. At the moment you arrive to the moment you leave, you are interviewing. Yeah. Whether opening oh, sure. a door, interacting with anybody, that is part of the interview. Uh, so, one, does, don't make be stressed about that. Just be yourself. Um, I, I think yeah. that applies in the rest of life. Definitely. Yeah. Like, yeah. for example, earlier we were saying the lunch panels, the meet and greets. Like, we don't, we're not going and giving feedback. That's very true. Same with the resident residency things are not going and giving feedback but if someone's like a complete jerk in one of those panels of course that information is going to get passed uh down oh, yeah. the line like hey this person yeah. said this or like was just so impolite in this meeting that's going to hurt you so yeah from the moment you're interacting with an organization to the end that is interview time i in take a lot of value in what our uh, admins say about the applicants if they are disrespectful to Jamie, shout out Jamie. Shout uh, out Jamie. Shout out Jamie Reed. If, if they're disrespectful to her, I, no, I, there is no way I would be okay with them coming she's in. She's like the class mom. Yeah, yeah like no, she's more than that. And it's a, it's she's also a godmother. It's a direct relationship to the, how you're going to handle anyone else you're working with that you don't see as a like your superior. So, uh, so the nurse, anyone else that you're interacting with, is that how you're going to treat them when you get there? I don't even want to take the risk. Just, you're not yeah, coming here. No time for that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, we there's too many other people that are lovely individuals that, again, may not even get an offer. I'd rather give it to one of them. Yep. Right? Yep. Couldn't agree more.
So, yeah. so we do MMI here. Yes. We do MMI um, and we do the PBL. Speaking of, we have an interview in 11 minutes that we have to get to. Um, oh, no, yeah. 12 minutes, but yeah. 12 minutes. <laughs> uh, today I'm doing MMI. Oh, congrats, yeah. Because yeah. <laughs> 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 he said how much you loved it. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I do like being in PBL. But, yeah, um, So uh, today I'm doing MMI. So we have the MMI. Um, we, we, you know... How, how do we how do we include that into like the overall admissions score? I can tell you from being at, at interview day and on admissions committee. How much does interview day actually impact the what this person gets in or gets out? From my perspective, unless they were totally bombed it and were rude, it can sink an applicant. Mm-hmm. If they do just an average job, it's not going to sink an applicant. And if they do exceptionally well, then it can probably get them in. If um, all things are, you know, okay, or if they were on the border of certain things you had questions about. When, um, I, when I do the screening thing, there's certain applicants that I look at and say, on paper, they're not, they are, again, the, the whole diamond in a rough thing. Like, I, there's a lot of little flaws. No, you were more than, you were a little more polished. But <laughs> Thanks. No problem, yeah. <laughs> like, no, but there's there's a lot that are... You know, uh, there's definitely weak points in this application. If you only graded uh, and scored them based on their application, they would not get in. But I think there's, like, clearly signs of them improving, doing well, and they have a lot of maybe other things going on, experiences. Unique perspectives are really valuable. Um, Let's see how they do an interview because if they are amazing and they are really good and they respond well to PPL and know how to answer these questions – uh, it gives me more confidence that they they can do this, and they also will be like this interesting uh, addition to our school. So if they come and then they're kind of just eh, it makes well, I'm a little sad because I was like, oh, I think I found this yeah. gem. Um, eh, but it doesn't. It might hurt them. It might be enough where they don't get in. Um, but if you're a solid packet and you just do you know an average performance, yeah, you probably still have a pretty good chance. Um, but that's different per. Uh, admissions and uh, committee. I member. would say when, not like to give incredibly, uh, you know, groundbreaking tips on MMIs here, but when you go into <laughs> an MMI, like it's okay to you know stop and think for a second, and the interviewer to see that you're actually taking a few seconds to consider it because you don't know the answer and you mm-hmm. haven't practiced this before, and you are taking a second to really think through it. That's good, in my yeah. opinion. Oh yeah, I love it when people when they go. You know, one of my favorite things is when someone's like, oh, "That's interesting." Okay, well, hold on, let me think about it. <laughs> well, I don't, you know, I, when they do that, I like that because then it's they're being themselves. So yeah. Um, then maybe the last item with it is, what do you think of virtual interviews? Oh man. Okay. Oh man. So I, I think we share similar sentiments on this. I hate them, but I don't hate them. I, I lie. For residency, <laughs> I, I said I, wa- I was hoping we were doing virtual interviews. Um, in hindsight, it would have been nice to go to these places and see these hospitals and meet everybody and feel that energy that you can only feel in person. For med school, I think that they are unfortunately and fortunately in some ways here to stay. Yeah. Just yeah. because of the sheer competitiveness of medical school. And it sort of gives us an opportunity as a school to sell ourselves to somebody from, you know, middle and nowhere Alaska, maybe. Um, And it also gives that person from middle and nowhere Alaska an opportunity to interview at a lot of places that they might, that might open their eyes to a different world. I'm somebody who's lived in a lot of different places. So I'm open to going anywhere. I'm not like a, I must stay in this place. So 
it kind of opens that door. And I think that that's cool. Um, I think that virtual interviews are, are great for medical school because, like, we were talking about those percentages, like 85, let's say, you so, know better than yeah, I do. Yeah, 40% of those who apply get in. Just 40% of those who apply to USMD schools get in. And then of that 40%, about 85% only have one offer. So I think that virtual interviews are great because only, you know, that many people get one offer. Um, I think it obviously saves a lot of cost in traveling, especially if you're coming from a place like Alaska <laughs> or so across country. you want to interview at as many places as you can for med school. I, Honestly, I don't think there's a cap. I will say, um, just to prevent some of the problems that we've seen in the virtual residency application process, I think to make a virtual application or interview process uh, not perfect but close to perfect, you need uh, like a, a system with deadlines and dates and like – uh, people with multiple acceptances must choose the one they want by this date so that the others can get freed up to other applicants. Like just how like plastic surgery in some places, but very mm -hmm. robust systems and, and timelines. I think the AMC could come up with something like that for medical school. So they, they do have something like that. So after all of you joined, they changed up the the decision process a little bit. It's, it's kind of nice and also kind of frustrating in a bit. I think I forget the exact dates. I'm just not going to say it's sometime in April um, where if you have multiple offers, uh, you have to narrow it down to your top three choices. And oh, you wow. have to for eliminate. Us it used to be one. I know. By April 30th. Which, I know. It yeah. used to be so much easier for the medical school because they were like, okay. well, they know they want to go here unless oh, they get like so another offer. But yeah, so it's, it's now like a in limbo thing of like, they probably maybe want to come with us, at least top three. Um, and then there's the final one in June where they decide. So we actually now have kind of like these two kind of phases where we'll have surprises. And I mean, most, like you said, like most don't get more than one offer. So that's kind of a moot point. Um, so we don't have a, a massive amount of shifting uh, when we get to those numbers. But we do get that because there's a certain, I would say like a handful that you'll see a lot of flux and we're going to moving through numbers. And you will now, especially since they have that opportunity to hold on to three because that yeah. waitlist movement happens tremendously. after The whole idea was April 30th. Okay, everybody picked their one spot. And yeah. then the waitlist started moving. But now you're sort of, now it puts the schools in an uncertain place and the applicants too in a way because mm -hmm. Well, the at least the ones that movement have, won't be as much, and it maybe even pushes it out even further into yeah. July. And what if we went the way of Texas and had a match system for medical school too? That's kind of cool, actually. I think Texas is doing that right, to be honest. Yeah. It's interesting. I mean, like yeah. that. If you only end up getting one acceptance, it's not going to hurt you. You're either getting in or you're not. And if you have multiple, you kind of get put into your first preference, and the other ones get freed up to other students. That's true. Uh, I think that's could be, cool. It could be nice. I want to say, like, last thing, though. Mm -hmm. um, well, virtual, I, I put the cap on with that. I, there's pros and cons in my mind. I like that thought that, you know, it frees up financially. But I've also heard a number of times from students that said, I came here because this felt like a small group family environment, and I want to join because of that. And it doesn't always come off on interview, you know, virtually on interview all the time. It doesn't. I, I, I think that's, like, totally genuine. But, like, some somebody at a lunch panel recently was asking me, and Sam was there, too. They were like, you know, what basically what differentiates the school like why should you come here it's not what they said but that was basically the question why should somebody come to this school compared to others and while there's lots of reasons we can name off of why we like the school the benefits etc if 85 percent of the people that get accepted just get accepted to one it's kind of a moot point that's for, fair that's fair 85 percent yeah. of people so if yeah. you have the privilege of getting multiple acceptances of course those questions matter yeah but that's not most people but yeah. for med schools you guys are sort of in you're in the place of power it it, it, it rests 
very largely which, in the med school's hands. Which is right. why we're saying that in-person interviews make more sense for residency because you're trying to find a job and yeah. you know that yeah. you're going to get 10 to 15 interviews on average if and you're what, applying match correctly. Rate is overall and 90 you know most people are matching. Yeah. It's yeah. nothing like medical school admissions at all. Yeah. So, that's true. Yeah, um, that's very true. Um, no, I, mean, I think that that's a fair point. I do think virtual is here to stay. I think um, so for med schools, yes. Yeah. I hope not for residencies. And I think if you have an option to do second looks i think especially for residencies in person that yeah. would be great um for med schools that'd be cool but again moot point not a lot of people got into other other places but maybe they just want to come see it feel it before they go um, oh and on that too i mean i know this is probably like taboo to say like but like if you do get an offer in a place and you're thinking well i want to be a, like super competitive thing and it requires research but i'm going to go to this rural medical school or even our school that may, we have research but we're not in one of the top 30s um, no anyways. we're a new school we're a new school yeah. right i mean yeah so if you are really wanting that and there's no change in your mind at least in your perspective maybe don't go to that place or oh. don't apply to that place so when i was when i had you know i my other acceptances were at do programs in this school and it took me a long time to make the decision where do i end up going mm -hmm. right Okay, do I want to take two sets of boards? No. This school, NSUMD, does not have a match list for me to look at. So I don't even know if I'm guaranteed to have a job. But these other programs do, and they have good match lists. Yeah. So it's, it was a, it's, it's a risk. Yeah. It was a risk coming here. Sure. A risk that paid off hugely um, for, for, hugely. for me. Yeah. Bigly. Like, Bigly. So, <laughs> for me, like socially, and people yeah, I've met, Mitch, great. Uma, um, you know, yourself, the, the, I was meant, always meant to come here. Um, oh, that's great. So, but you know, that's something you should look at. Look at the school's match list. And for that future so classes, important. they can now, thankfully. And we matched yeah. well. We did well and on we boards. We did good. We did good on boards. Um, you did good. You did um, good. We did bigly. bigly. We did bigly. Very bigly. <laughs> we did bigly. <laughs> I want to close though and say, like, this is actually the end of my admissions run. So I'm off after this cycle. Uh, so Aww. what? Well, in some ways, it makes me a little free because I, I have like certain obligations where I can't disclose anything. I have a lot of privileged information, but I'm going to be removed from that. Um, so one thing I, I want to do going forward for more like diversity outreach kind of stuff is if you are a candidate, uh, if you're listening to this, hopefully maybe this will increase the numbers. You have to watch to the very end. Um, <laughs> I am offering for anyone that is a first time or underrepresented uh, in medicine and you're thinking about applying, uh, free consultation. I intend to, I'm trying to do this with uh, Dr. Levy for uh, some one of our initiatives for Pipeline. Um, but giving that consultation, I don't know, I, I'm guessing, mm -hmm. I don't get the sense since you never mentioned it, that you got consultation, but that, that runs really expensive and it significantly improves your odd of getting into a medical school with that kind of guidance. So, and it's very simple things. It's not about, oh, you need to do this and this. It's about rearranging it so it's very clear what you did uh, because it doesn't come out as always as perfect because maybe they never had that guidance. So if you do have that interest, you can reach out to me, I will. I'm pro bono, so yeah. Me too. I mean, if there's yes. any anybody first generation, uh, you know, people who grew up no guidance, you know, you grew up poor, such as myself. <laughs> like Samantha. <laughs> um, you know, you just you just your first go at it, and you need help. I'm always here to help. I can help um, with the application process. Um, you can find me. Find me. Doctor Bachman, 
I think that about wraps it up. Yeah, I think so. That was a lot of stuff we covered. Hopefully that was helpful. Uh, I think this is the most like pre-med centric episode we've made and probably will make for a while. Not sure what the future holds, Um, but hopefully this was helpful and insightful. Shout out to everyone that uh, stayed this long. So thank you, Brad. Hey, Brad. Yeah. He texted us. He said, thanks for the shout out. Oh, hey, cool. Brad, shout out again. He's getting another shout out. Hey, Ooh. shout out that kid in my organic chemistry class, by the way. Yeah. Forgot his name. <laughs> Something wits. <laughs> Something wits. Thank you, Dr. Bachman. Thank uh, you. Until Thank next you. time. Thank you, Brad. Yeah. When we play it out, it's the Sink or Swim podcast. Brad, we know you're listening. Brad, we know you're listening. And you're swimming. You're never going to sink. No, you're never going to sink. You're always going to swim. Goodbye. Woo.